0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 197, The Sons of Ragnar Lothbrok. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Here's a sample of what the members are listening to right now. You had all kinds of different ways that Easter could be calculated. And we see in records that early Christians would check in with their Jewish neighbors and find out when Passover was happening, and then plan to celebrate Easter on the Sunday of that week. So, the big takeaway is that early on, this was all dictated by the Jewish calendar. However, that made some Christians a bit grumpy, because the Jewish calendar was a lunar calendar. And a lunar calendar is 11 days shorter than a solar calendar. And while dealing with leap years is a pain in the butt, a lunar year has to deal with nearly two weeks of extra days. They're called epacts, at least I think that's how you pronounce it. And the crazy thing about EPACs is when you end up with more than 30 of them, you trade them in for an extra month that's inserted into the calendar. Seriously, that's how that works. Consequently, figuring out when Easter was was really difficult on a lunar calendar, and that was driving some Christians bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. If you'd like to support the show and listen to this episode and others like them, you can sign up for membership over at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to John, Tammy, and Stephanie for signing up already. We're at a major turning point for Britain. The Great Heathen Army is arriving on the northern shores. And as a consequence, I've been racking my brain for weeks trying to figure out how best to tell you this story and deal with the Great Heathen Army, because it has all the elements that make a story nearly impossible to tell. On the one hand, what remains to us of the Great Heathen Army has aspects that are almost certainly pure legend, along the lines of the story of King Arthur. And so it's very tempting to tell this story as a legend and just discuss the legendary aspects in a direct way. However, unlike the story of King Arthur, we know that the great heathen army happened. Danelaw happened. We're talking about real events. Real events that also, over time, became partly mythological. The story of the great heathen army is a bit like the story of Troy, We have the mythological stories surrounding Troy, but we also know that Troy was a place. So where does that leave us when it comes to Helen and the war to get her back? We're going to have the same problem here. And the consequence of this tension between fact and myth is that you're going to get this story in two parts. I'll start out telling you the myth of the Great Heathen Army. The story itself is a little messy because it comes from multiple sagas, chronicles, and other sources. And at first, I thought to pull the Snorri Sturluson and compile the various stories into one comprehensive story. But after writing it down, I realized that it was actually an awful teaching tool. Because what I was doing is creating a brand new myth out of multiple other myths, which is kind of what Snorri did in the first place. And that would be injecting myself into the story far more than I'm comfortable with. So here's what we're going to do. In this episode, you're going to hear what appears to be the earliest Scandinavian version of this story, the Saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. And because of how long it is, I'm going to tell it to you in a shortened BHP style. But just because it's an early Scandinavian account, don't think that it was written by witnesses to the event. Early in this case means that it was written only about 400 years after the great heathen army had passed. But at least it isn't 600 years like some of the other Scandinavian accounts seem to be. And that's because, as you might remember, the Scandinavian records from this period come from Christians like Snorri, who were writing centuries later. And unfortunately, that's the best we're going to get if we want to get the story from the Scandinavian perspective. Now, later on, we will, of course, be talking about Assur and the Chronicle, which were far more contemporary records. But those are from the English perspective, and they lack many of the details that flesh out the story about the Sons of Ragnar. As we go forward, I will probably also include details from other sagas as needed. But I think that this saga in particular is useful, because it gives us a really good sense of the way they deal with storytelling. And you're going to be able to see for yourself how mythological many pieces of the sagas had become. And knowledge like this is important because it helps us weigh the details that were being given. As you might remember from way back when we first started talking about the Anglo-Saxons, I told you about how we can't treat sources like a salad bar, taking what we want and leaving the rest. If you have a source that talks about magical birds who speak in prophecies, and that same source also talks about the migrations into and out of Britain during the Sub-Roman era. You can't say, well, this source is trustworthy for the data on migrations, but that prophetic bird thing is nonsense. That's not how it works. The whole document needs to be taken into account when we weigh this stuff, because for all we know, the migrations might be just as mythological as the prophetic birds. So just like when we were talking about the early Sub-Roman era, I want you to hear the saga of Ragnar in context so that you won't be tempted to simply take the sagas on faith and say, obviously Ragnar existed and he died via snakes because the sagas talk about him being locked in with a bunch of snakes. I think a bold, uncritical assumption like that would be a mistake. So that's why you're getting the story this week. And then in the next episode, we'll start picking apart those myths and discuss what seems to have actually happened and where the myths might reflect the truth. And also, where this whole thing might just be a Middle Ages Marvel movie. So with that out of the way, here is the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. We begin the story with Ragnar's second wife, Kraka, giving birth to a baby boy. The boy was born boneless, with nothing but gristle where his bones should be. The couple sprinkled him with water, and named him ivor soon thereafter they had three more sons bjorn witzerk which means white shirt and Roggenwald. while all the boys were impressive in their own right it was ivor who was the wisest the largest and the most handsome of them all he was a natural leader when they would play it would be ivor who would decide what they would do and despite his physical condition Ivar's brothers never left him behind. Rather, Bjorn, Witzerk, and Ragnvald would carry their boneless brother on poles wherever they went. But the four brothers weren't Ragnar's only children. He had two older sons from his first marriage, and they were named Eric and Agnar, and they were already powerful men of great renown. Every summer, they took to their raiding ships, and would return later that year with their hulls loaded with treasure. People spoke quite highly of Eric and Agnar, And this fact was not lost on Ivar. He wanted what his older brothers had. He wanted to be a raider. So Ivar told Bjorn and Witzerk to carry him to Ragnar. And once there, he asked his father to supply them with ships and experienced raiding crews. Ragnar was pleased with his son's initiative and did as they asked. The brothers quickly proved that they were incredibly successful raiders. But that wasn't enough for Ivor. He wanted to prove himself to be the greatest raider. And to do that would mean that he'd have to conquer a place where even Ragnar had not succeeded in taking. He would have to raid a territory called Vitaber, which means the White Settlement. Vít the Bear was infamous among the Northmen for being impervious to invasion, thanks to their powerful magic, which was fueled by massive sacrifices. Now this was the perfect location for Ivar and his brothers to show their father how powerful they had become. And so they set their course for the White Settlement. Now their baby brother, Ragnvald, was still quite young, and everyone knew that this would be a very dangerous raid. So once the brothers and their warriors arrived on the shores of Witteber, they left Rangvald with a group of warriors and ordered him to guard the ships, in hopes of keeping their little brother safe. Orders set, the three elder brothers and the majority of their raiders advanced towards the settlement. Upon seeing the approaching raiders, the townsfolk immediately took part in a sacrifice. The sight of the sacrifice struck terror into the hearts of the raiders. And then the townsfolk brought forth two magical bulls. And upon hearing the bellowing of these bulls, many of Ivor's men turned to run. But Ivor stood fast and assured them that nothing would harm them. He told them to ignore their unease, brace themselves, and stand firm. And the men did as they were asked. The townsfolk pushed the young bulls out of their gates and set them loose on the Viking band. The massive animals charged forward, straight at the shield wall. But Ivor didn't move. He called for his bow, and with a cold precision, he shot and killed the bulls before they ever reached the front line of the shield wall. Seeing the strength of their leader, the raiders let loose a huge cry of victory. And far away, on the shores... Rangwald heard this, and he grew jealous. He didn't realize that his brothers were trying to protect him. Instead, he thought that they were trying to steal all of the glory for themselves. So he ordered the few men that were left under his command to follow him, and he marched for the town. Once he reached the settlement, he saw that Ivar, Bjorn, and Witzerk's men were approaching the town's wall in an ordered manner. Seeking to gain glory for himself, Ragenwald and his men charged fearlessly at the opposing force and met them head on. Rogenwald and his band were slaughtered. The remaining brothers continued their attack and breached the walls. And once through, they set upon the townsfolk. The magic of Witteber was defeated and the townsfolk turned to flee, but it was too late for them. Every last person was slaughtered. Afterwards, the brothers and their men looted the town, tore down all of their walls, burned every building, and sailed away in glorious victory. Meanwhile, back in Scandinavia, Kraka had told Ragnar that she had a mysterious and secret past. She told him that she was actually Aslog, the daughter of Sigurd Fafnir's bane, and also of Brunhilde. Ragnar was skeptical, given the relative poverty in which she'd been living in with Grimma when he first met her. But Kraka told an incredible story of her infant years, which she could still remember clearly, of how her parents were killed, and how she was entrusted to a close kin member, and of how Grimma and her husband killed him and raised Kraka as their own. Then Kraka told Ragnar that she was pregnant with another child and prophesied that this child would have the mark of the serpent in his eye. Ragnar wasn't buying it. But soon thereafter, Kraka gave birth to a little boy, who had the mark of the serpent in his eye. Ragnar immediately spoke in verse, like anyone would do in this situation. And amid the poetry, he named his son Sigurd Snake in the Eye. And he accepted that his wife was telling the truth. She was Aslog, daughter of Brunhilde. During this same time, Ragnar's oldest sons, Agnar and Erik, launched a massive fleet to raid King Eystein of Sweden. The Swedish king had learned of the attack and prepared one of the largest hosts ever seen in the north. He also readied his great divine cow. This cow would tip the scales of battle, but only after great sacrifices were made to her. Without the appropriate sacrifices, she would not even move. So Einstein ordered the cow be appeased and then brought to the battlefield. When the two forces met, Agnar and Eric realized that the king's army was too large to handle. And then even more of the king's forces came out of the forest, doubling the king's numbers. It was too late to retreat now. Agnar and Eric would have to stand and fight. And then King Einstein released the cow. And it charged into Agnar and Eric's lines, goring many great warriors and panicking others. None could withstand such powerful sorcery. And soon, Agnar was slain, and Eric was captured. King Eystein offered to strike a truce. And arrange a marriage between Eric and Einstein's daughter. Eric responded in verse and stated that he would prefer to be impaled on a spear than wed the king's daughter. And then he asked that his surviving men be granted safe passage before he was killed. The king granted his wish, and the eldest son of Ragnar was executed by spear. Word of Eric and Agnar's death soon reached Aslog. And although they were not her sons, she was enraged and demanded vengeance. But her sons were fighting on Viterbear. Ragnar was out doing Ragnar things, and young Sigurd Snake-in-the-Eye was only three. So all she could do was wait. Ivor, Bjorn, and Vitserk eventually returned home. And they told Aslog of their great victory. And also of the fall of Ragnvald. Rather than being saddened by her son's death, she spoke in verse of her pride for her son and his great courage and how he would face Odin unafraid. Then she told her remaining sons of the loss of Agnar and Eric, and asked them to seek out vengeance. She promised to aid them in everything that she could. But Ivar, wise Ivar, was hesitant. He was wary of facing King Eistein's host, and whatever sorcery he had conjured. He pointed out that the king was powerful, wicked, and supported by the great cow named Sibilia. Sibilia was so fearsome that even her bellows would cause men to go mad. Because of the strength of this cow, Ivar knew that his men would likely be defeated before they ever even faced the king's forces, and he would not risk their lives in vain. Aslog told him, you might realize that you cannot be called the greatest of men if you don't strive for it. Brutal. But Ivor remained unmoved. And as his brothers trusted him with their lives, his brothers too remained unmoved. Suddenly, three-year-old Sigurd spoke in verse and stated that it would take three nights for him to prepare a force, but by the end of the fight, the king would be dethroned. This shocked the brothers. Not only was a three-year-old speaking in verse, but he was declaring his intention to seek out vengeance all on his own. Bjorn was the first to respond, and speaking in verse himself, he stated that he too would seek vengeance for his half-brothers. Then Vitzerk responded in kind and promised vengeance. Finally, Ivor spoke in verse and claimed that he would be the greatest of all because he was boneless and yet he would still have vengeance a great fleet was launched sigurd had five ships Vitzirk and bjorn had 14 ships ivor had 10 ships and aslog had another 10. but while aslog had 10 ships it seems that she wasn't fully a member of the raid Ivor told his mother that she would not be welcome on their ships, but she could command the land forces, to which she agreed. And then she took the name Randolin, which seems to have been a play on the Scandinavian term, shield goddess. Upon landing in Sweden, the remaining brothers and their forces killed every mother's son and any living thing that they encountered. Every house was burned, every structure was torn down, their vengeance was total. King Einstein heard of the approaching host, and he summoned his army and the great cow, Sibelia. Finally, the two forces met. Ivor could hear the bellowing of the cow, but he was ready. He ordered his men to make battle cries, bash their shields, and do anything they could to drown out the sound of the dread cow. And then he ordered the men tasked with carrying him to move as far forward as they could. He said, when that cow comes at us, throw me at her, and one of two things will happen. Either I shall lay down my life, or else she will get her death. Then he ordered his men to carve a bow out of a large tree and fashion arrows large enough to be used on it. They did as they were asked, but it was a pointless task because this bow was too large, too strong for anyone to use it. And then the cow came into view. The men started clashing their shields and screaming, and Ivor, mighty Ivor, pulled the bowstring as easily as if it were an elm twig. The giant arrows flew through the air as if they were fired from the largest crossbow, and they went straight into Sibilia's eyes. She fell, but she was not defeated. Her bellowing became even worse than before and she stood up and charged straight at the front lines. Ivor ordered his men to throw him at the cow. They did as they were asked, and in the air he became as heavy as a boulder, and landed on Sibelia's back, breaking every bone in her body. At last, the dread cow of Sweden was defeated. Ivor's men rushed forward and collected him, and he gave a speech preparing them for the next battle with the king. And he said to them, Now it seems that the most deadly one, that cow, is killed. And he told them that the fight would soon be over, and then they could return home. King Eistein lined his forces up and charged. But the forces of Bjorn and Witzerk fought so fiercely that none could stand against them. King Eistein was slain and his army defeated. It was a great victory, but Ivor was dissatisfied. He said, I would rather that we set sail to where a greater force is facing us. And the brothers now accompanied by the battle-hardened toddler Sigurd Snake-in-the-Eye, set off for plunder in Germany, the Mediterranean, and elsewhere. Meanwhile, Ragnar was back in his kingdom, and he found himself alone. It's the ninth century, and do you know where your kids are? Ragnar doesn't. But he soon received word of how incredibly glorious his sons were, and how famous they had become. His sons were now the most glorious warriors in all the world. Upon hearing this, did Ragnar feel relieved, knowing that his sons were okay? Did he swell with pride upon hearing the great tales of their victories? Did he pause to mourn the passing of three of his own sons? No. As soon as he heard people singing the praises of his sons, he said, Oh, hell no and he ordered the construction of two ships, larger than any have ever been made, and demanded that they be loaded down with all the weapons from his kingdom. Ragnar was going to best his sons. Because, when it comes down to it, Ragnar was a terrible father. Now, he told no one of his plans, but people pretty quickly worked out that he was planning an expedition. And soon Randolin no longer going by the name Kraka, pressed him on what he was doing. And Ragnar admitted that he was going to invade England with just two ships. When she suggested he take more ships, because sailing to England was dangerous, and if one of his ships was wrecked, they might have to surrender right away, Ragnar insisted that there wasn't enough honor in that. He wanted to win the island with just two ships. Because that is how the island had been conquered in centuries past. And then he told her in verse that he longed for money and glory. And he was going to get it. There was nothing Rondolin could do to stop her husband. Sometimes your partner is just dead set on doing something stupid. And you're just a passenger to their object lesson in humility. Knowing that this would likely end in disaster... Rondolin simply requested that Ragnar wear a magical shirt, which she had made, in order to keep him protected. He agreed, and then he set sail. But Rondolin was right. The passage to England was treacherous, and the weather was so foul that both of Ragnar's great ships were wrecked. As luck would have it, though, they were close enough to land that he and his men were able to make it ashore with their clothing and weapons and they set about immediately besieging any villages and towns that they encountered. Ragnar, clad in a helm and the magical shirt, which he wore over his mail coat, and wielding his trusty spear, which he used to vanquish Thor's serpent all those years ago, was unstoppable in battle. But all of this activity had gained the attention of King Alla, who ruled over England. In response, Alla raised an army that was so great that it was a wonder of the world. Every brave man who could wield a shield and ride a horse was summoned. They were prepared for war. However, Alla warned his men not to kill Ragnar. Because if he should die, then Ragnar's sons will come seeking vengeance. Soon, the two forces met and King Alla's forces dwarfed Ragnar's raiding party. While his men were falling all around him, Ragnar fought fiercely and killed many English warriors. Blow after blow landed upon him, and yet nothing would wound him. But finally, the English pressed him to the ground with their shields, and they captured him. When they asked who he was, who this man who killed so many Englishmen was, Ragnar remained silent. They would not learn his name. The insolence of this northern warrior enraged King Alla, and he ordered that the vikingar be put into a room, or maybe a pit, filled with snakes, and that he not be let out until he said who he was. But Alla was quick to add that if he said he was indeed Ragnar, he must be retrieved quickly. For if Ragnar was killed, his sons would soon be upon them, seeking vengeance. But even after Ragnar was tossed in with the snakes, even after the serpents writhed around him, he wouldn't say anything. And thanks to his magical shirt, the snakes could not bite him. So he just lay there, quietly. Frustrated, King Alla ordered that the Scandinavian warrior be stripped, and then thrown back in with the snakes. And now, lacking his magical shirt, the snakes sunk their fangs in. And finally, finally, Ragnar spoke. The piglets would grunt now if they knew what the old boar suffers, he said. Then he spoke in verse. I have fought against foes in fifty-one battles in all, which seemed a splendid feat. I did scathe to many men. I never imagined a snake for the ending of my life. Many things may happen which men themselves expect least. The piglets would protest loudly if the boar's plight they knew. Death has been dealt to me. Snakes dig in my flesh house and savagely stab me. Serpents suck my life out. Beside the beasts, I'll die now. Soon, I will be a corpse. Suddenly... King Alla realized that he had killed Ragnar Lothbrok. And he panicked. Trying to get ahead of the problem, he sent out messengers to inform the sons of Ragnar of what happened and seek peace. The messengers found the four brothers in Denmark. Sigurd and Witzerk were playing a board game. Bjorn was cutting a new spear shaft. And Ivar was on the high seat of the hall. The English messengers respectfully approached Ivar and told him that Ragnar was dead. Wietzerk and Sigurd dropped their game pieces in shock. Bjorn grabbed his spear shaft and stood up. But Ivar sat motionless, and simply began to ask the messengers questions, wanting to know what happened. The Englishmen did their best to answer him, and to explain the death of Ragnar. They included every detail that they knew, and when they reached Ragnar's death song, when they reached the point where Ragnar said the piglets would grunt, Bjorn clenched his spear so hard that he left his handprint on it. And then, when they reached the end of the tale, with Ragnar lying lifeless among the serpents, Bjorn split the shaft in two. Vitzirk squeezed the game piece in his hand so hard that blood spurted out from underneath every nail. Sigurd, who was paring down his nails with a knife, pared his fingers to the bone. But Ivar, Ivar sat motionless. At times, as the Englishman told their story, he would go pale. But as the account went on, his skin kept darkening, turning red, and then black. He was so enraged that his entire body swelled but he remained quiet. Witzirk was the first to speak, and he demanded that they seek vengeance and begin by killing the messengers. But Ivar refused, and ordered that the messengers be provisioned and allowed to go in peace. The Englishmen quickly begged their leave and set course for England before anyone might change their minds. As soon as the brothers were alone, Bjorn, Witzirk, and Sigurd set about planning their revenge. But Ivar spoke up. I will not take part, and I will not summon my men, because Ragnar did just as I was afraid he would. He handled this matter badly from the beginning. He had no quarrel with King Alla, and it has often happened that if a man unjustly plans aggression, he is laid low in dishonor. I will accept monetary compensation from King Alla, if he will grant it to me. This wasn't the answer that his brothers were looking for, and they would not be dissuaded from their vengeance, and they accused Ivar of cowardice. But he was no coward. He simply wouldn't risk the lives of his men, but he'd still accompany his brothers. So he took his own ship and joined them, but he left his fleet behind. The sons of Ragnar, with a much smaller host, set sail, bound for England. When they landed, King Allah summoned all his men and immediately marched upon the brothers. But Ivor was true to his word. He wouldn't take part in the battle, as he felt he had no quarrel with the king. And as a consequence, King Allah quickly put Ivor's brothers to flight. Ivor then met with the king, and he informed Allah that he was seeking compensation for the loss of his father, rather than battle. Witzerk, upon hearing about this, was disgusted and stated that he would never accept money for their father's death, and then he broke from his brother's company. But Ivor remained, and when Allah asked what he wanted, Ivar informed him that all he wanted was as much land as an oxhide could cover. No more than that. And in exchange, Ivor would not oppose Allah in battle. They agreed. Soon thereafter, Ivor took the hide of an old bull, softened it, and had it stretched three times. Then he cut it apart as thinly as possible, then split the flesh side from the hairy side. And in the end, people were marveling at the length of his thong. It had never occurred to anyone that it could be so long. That's almost a direct translation. Apparently, Ivor had made the world's longest thong. And then he took his super Bowl thong and encircled a plot of land so large that a large town could be built within it. Allah had been bested, and this would now be Ivor's land, as agreed. Ivor's carpenters and masons went to work, and walls were raised, buildings were constructed, and a great city was created. It was called London Town, the largest and most famous of all English towns. As with everything else in his life, Ivor was amazing when it came to rule. He was generous, wise, and everybody liked him. And he really was the best when it came to ruling. Even King Allah came to Ivor seeking his help and advice. His brothers continued to send him tribute, as they had promised. But rather than keeping it, Ivor gave that money to various leaders in England. In exchange for a promise that they stay home peacefully if there is any battle in the future. After some time, Ivor sent a secret message to his brothers and told them to raise all their warriors and set sail immediately for England and to come as quickly as possible because they didn't want anyone to have word of their plans. The brothers did as they were asked. When they landed, King Alice summoned his warriors to his banner. But few answered the call thanks to Ivor's bribes. But Ivor answered. And he asked the king's permission to seek out his brothers and request that they halt their advance and end the attack. King Allah gave Ivor his leave. When Ivor joined his brothers, he told them to advance on Allah as quickly as possible because of how few in number the English army was. And then he returned back to Allah, and told the English king that the brothers would not accept a truce. And that, being true to his word, He would not fight against the king, but he would not fight his brothers either. He would stand apart. The approaching army of Bjorn, Fitzirk, and Sigurd was just too much for the weakened King Alla to withstand. His army was defeated, and the king was captured. Ivar then rejoined his brothers, and he said to them, "'My advice now is that we remember the sort of death he ordered for our father.' Now the man who is the most skilled woodcarver shall carve the blood-red eagle on his back. The brothers agreed, and King Alla met his end. The northern kingdoms were then given to Vitserk, Bjorn, and Sigurd. But Ivar stayed behind, and he ruled over England. And thus ends the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. Now, this is one of the few sources that we have of the Scandinavian perspective of the great heathen army. It's crazy, right? Now, there is another saga that is a little less crazy, but the dating on these sagas is a bit wonky, and it very well could be from centuries later. Now, I can't help but wonder if the story in this other saga, which is called The Tale of Ragnar's Sons, is a revision and an attempt to make the story sound a bit more plausible. In this saga, there are no dread cows, nor any mention of the White Settlement, but other things are still similar. And reading these sagas is like watching one of the billion year one Batman movies out there. They all involve the murder of Mr. and Mrs. Wayne, and then they follow the story of Bruce growing up to be a rich sociopath with a god complex. But each version has differences around key points. And that's the way it is with these sagas. But so you're not left out. Here's a brief breakdown of the other major version of this story, the tale of Ragnar's sons. Just like in the first one, Ivar, Bjorn, Witzerk, and Sigurd were Aslog's kids. And Erik and Agnar were Ragnar's kids from a different marriage, and they were raiders. But then we start to get a different take on the growing tension and motivations of the members of the family. We're told that the boys were raiding everywhere, and they were trying to become more famous than Ragnar. And that they were also rebellious, refusing to pay Ragnar tribute and even taking Legere, even though King Ragnar explicitly forbid it. So Ragnar knew that he had a problem on his hands with his kids, and he made an agreement with King Einstein of Sweden, where the king promised to defend Ragnar if the boys tried to take Ragnar's lands. Subsequently, Agnar and Eric raised a large force and met with King Eystein. The original purpose of the meeting was because Eric wanted to marry Borghild, Einstein's daughter. But he said that, once the marriage was over, King Einstein could support their claim to take Ragnar's kingdom. It turned out that Ragnar was correct. They were after his lands. So King Einstein kept his word, raised his forces, and killed Agnar and captured Eric. After the battle, King Einstein met with Eric, and he offered to proceed with the marriage and also grant Eric safe conduct. But Eric refused, and insisted that his only request was that he could choose the time and method of his death, and he wanted to die by spear. So the king obliged him. Queen Aslog heard about this and convinced her sons to attack Einstein in revenge. And, like in the previous saga, It was Sigurd who was first to speak, though it doesn't look like he was a toddler. The force that was launched was overwhelming, and it was joined by 1,500 men on horseback who were under Queen Aslog's command, and she was now calling herself Randolin. They plundered and burned everything they saw in Sweden, and then defeated King Eystein. It was a glorious victory, but when King Ragnar heard of it, he was angered because his sons went to war without waiting for him. So he decided to attack England with two ships, like his ancestors had done. And he would take just 500 men. Aslog was not impressed with this plan, but she gave him a silk tunic which would protect him. And it turns out that her reservations were right on point, because the seas were treacherous, and Ragnar was shipwrecked in England. Upon hearing of the landing, King Alla of Northumbria summoned a huge army and captured King Ragnar. Alla then put Ragnar into an enclosure with some snakes, but the snakes couldn't get past the tunic. So Alla had the tunic stripped off of him, and there Ragnar died. Upon hearing of this death, Ivar refused to avenge his father, so the brothers attacked alone, but they were defeated. And then later, Ivor made a settlement with Allah for a bit of land the size of a bull's hide. Naturally, he did the thong thing, and he made an incredibly fine cord and took a huge territory. He built walls and a city within it, and he called it York. And because this is Ivar we're talking about, everyone loved him, thought he was the best, and things were going pretty well. Then he invited his brothers to attack Allah because he hadn't forgotten what the king had done. The brothers landed, and Alla raised an army. But as the two forces approached each other, a bunch of the English army switched sides to Ivar, and Alla was defeated and captured. And then they set to torturing King Alla. They used a sword to cut all the ribs away from his backbone, and then they pulled his still palpating lungs out of his body. This was called the Blood Red Eagle. Afterwards, Ivar took the part of England that his kin had once held before, and he became a king of England. He had two brothers, Ingvar and Husto, and they were the sons of a concubine, and on his orders, they went out and tortured King Edmund. Following that event, Ivar then took over East Anglia as well. The sons of Lothbrok went on to conquer England, Wales, and France. And that's where that tale stops. So that's the second major saga that covers the great heathen army. And next week, we're going to unpack some of this and see if we can square it with the writings of Asser and the Chronicle. And given the attention to birds and weird clouds, if there were any magical cows involved, I can pretty much guarantee that our monks are going to tell us about it. Fingers crossed. All right, if you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can reach me at the British Podcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast and you can find links to all our other communities at the Podcast.com. Thanks for listening All right, time for another pub quiz. You know the drill. Question one. Once the Anglo-Saxon nobility realized the wealth that was being generated by trading towns, they began to extract that wealth. How did they do it? Question two. The suffix witch has a particular meaning in Old English, and it appears in many towns from this period. What does witch denote? Question three. Asser tells us all sorts of tales about Alfred that might have been lies, such as him being anointed as king by the Pope as a small child. However, Alfred does appear to have been a rather important figure in court and was probably privileged by his father, the king. And we suspect that because we see him doing what since he was about six years old? Question four, despite Alfred's prized position, he remained illiterate for far longer than was typical for a noble of his station. At what point did Alfred start to learn to read? Question 5. Queen Judith, widow of King Athelwolf, and later widow of his son, King Athelbald, it was complicated, Well, after that second widowing, she returned to Francia and was placed in a nunnery by her father, King Charles. And there, she met a strapping young warrior who she fancied. What was that warrior's name? Question six. Alfred apparently had some pretty wicked hemorrhoids. And according to Asser, they were the result of God answering Alfred's prayers in a roundabout way. What was Alfred praying for? Question seven. Later on, Alfred's health troubles relocated inward and gave him chronic stomach pains, weakness, and a variety of other conditions that would plague him for the rest of his days. Modern scholars believe that they've diagnosed his disease. What do they think he probably had? Question eight. Ivor the Boneless is a figure that's rather prominent in British and Irish history. According to legend, who were his parents? Question nine. One animal in particular repeatedly appears in the legends surrounding Ivor and his brothers and is spoken of in terms of great fear and power. In particular, Ivor is praised for not reacting in fear to these animals. What were they? Question 10. According to legend, how did Ivor the Boneless kill King Alla of Northumbria? All right, let's see how you did. Question one, once the Anglo-Saxon nobility realized the wealth that was being generated by trading towns, they began to extract that wealth. How did they do it? They strictly controlled access to the towns by gating and guarding their entrances and then charged tolls for access. Question two, the suffix which has a particular meaning in Old English and it appears in many towns from this period. What does witch denote? It's a town that specializes in the creation of a particular good. For example, Saltwich provided salt. Question three. Asser tells us all sorts of tales about Alfred that might have been lies such as him being anointed as king by the pope as a small child. However, Alfred does appear to have been a rather important figure in court, and was probably privileged by his father, the king. And we suspect that because we see him doing what since he was about six years old? He was witnessing the king's charters. Question four. Despite Alfred's prized position, he remained illiterate for far longer than was typical for a noble of his station. At what point did Alfred start to learn to read? Not until he was 12. Question 5. Queen Judith, widow of King Athelwolf and later widow of his son, King Athelbald. It was complicated. Well, after that second widowing, she returned to Francia and was placed in a nunnery by her father, King Charles. And there, she met a strapping young warrior who she fancied. What was that warrior's name? Baldwin. Question six. Alfred apparently had some pretty wicked hemorrhoids, And according to Asser, they were the result of God answering Alfred's prayers in a roundabout way. What was Alfred praying for? A way to suppress his sexual urges. Question seven. Later on, Alfred's health troubles relocated inward and gave him chronic stomach pains, weakness, and a variety of other conditions that would plague him for the rest of his days. Modern scholars believe that they've diagnosed his disease. And what do they think he probably had? Crohn's disease. Question 8. Ivar the Boneless is a figure that's rather prominent in British and Irish history. According to legend, who were his parents? Ragnar Lothbrok and Kraka, also known as Aslog. Question 9. One animal in particular repeatedly appears in the legends surrounding Ivar and his brothers and is spoken of in terms of great fear and power. In particular, Ivor is praised for not reacting in fear to these animals. What were they? Cattle. Question 10. According to legend, how did Ivor the Boneless kill King Alla of Northumbria? With the blood-red eagle. All right, I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.